Luke chapter 1. We're in the first month of a 16-month study on refocusing on Jesus and uh, using Luke's gospel to uh, go in that direction. Uh, As you're turning there this morning, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The passage will be up on the screen in just a a couple of minutes. But uh, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. Uh, When you think about first impressions, you know, my, my mom always told me you only have one chance to make a first impression. And she was right about that. Uh, when you think about that, uh, how do you present yourself to people? When you first meet folks, maybe it's a new business associate, maybe it's a, a next-door neighbor, it might be somebody in church. You, If you're a regular attender at Green Tree, we try to be uh, friendly and, and keep an eye out for folks we haven't met before. And so there may be somebody that stops you in the hallway this morning if you're a visitor and, and welcomes you here. I hope that, that we do that. Uh, what kind of impression uh, do you hope to make? So I was talking to people this week and asking them that question, you know, what kind of impression do you like to make? Here's some of the answers I got. Uh, One guy said, you know, I really want to be a a tough but fair-minded businessman. I hope people see that about me. Uh, Someone who actually isn't one of my children said, I want to be known as a good student. Uh, And I thought that was a pretty pretty good answer. I was actually one of the kids on my hockey team. Uh, Somebody said, I I want to be a no-nonsense kind of person. I want people to know that kind of what they see is what they get, and and I don't pretend to be something I'm not. Other people said, fair... Uh, open-minded. Uh, one, one person said, I, I want to be known as a kind person. Another, another person who I really relate to said, you know, when I, the truth is when I drive down the freeway, I really kind of want to be known as an Indy race car driver. And I could really kind of relate to that just a little bit. That's why I don't have one of those little ichthuses on the back of my car. But anyway, um, what impression do you want to make uh, with people? Well, part of it depends on, on how close you want to let them get. I mean, is this somebody that's just going to be a casual acquaintance and you kind of hold them at arm's length and you kind of, you know, hope that they uh, see the best in you? But it really comes down to whether or not you're uh, willing to let them see the real you. And I want you to know that, that I got a postcard this week in the mail from somebody that really uh, understands me, uh, really has, has gotten to know me well, uh, I think, over the years and has found uh, my true pos- potential. It's from the Barbizon Modeling Agency. Why are y'all laughing? And it's addressed to uh, Mr. Thomas Ricks. It's not to resident. There's not, you know, the, the most recent person living in this house. And it's just reminding me of all the local and international opportunities, including top New York agencies available for aspiring models. I guess I'm an aspiring model. Ages eight and up, I fit into the and up category of that. So I need to go and showcase my potential this Saturday uh, to all these folks. Now, y'all are laughing because you, you think of me maybe not as a model. But I want you to know that I've actually had a modeling career. I want you to know that I've actually modeled uh, for a magazine. And I know you wouldn't believe me, so I'm going to put the picture on the screen. Uh, this, is my, this is my modeling debut back in 1999 in the March issue a field and stream. And if you don't believe it, I brought the magazine with me this morning. Uh, and this is an article called Gobbler Setups That Even the Odds on Turkey Hunting. Hat brim pulled low and gun properly braced. This hunter is ready for the shot. Now, I've never shot a turkey in my life, okay? I had a buddy that was a freelance photographer and uh, needed some help with a photo shoot because he had lost his pictures. And so he called me one day and said, would you meet me out in the woods? And you're about the right size of all the gear I have, and I need to take some pictures. And what I got out of the whole deal were those boots that you see me wearing. I still have them in a a, uh, closet at home. So that's my... Uh, That's my opportunity to make an impression on the modeling world. Needless to say, it was a short-lived career. You know, God has... uh, We go ahead and move past that screen now. Thank you very much. 
God had one chance to introduce himself to the world in human form. Jesus came in the flesh one time. And as I asked you this morning, you know, how do you want to present yourself to people? What impressions do you want folks to have of you, whether it's a, a model or, or something uh, of the list that I mentioned here this morning? I'll ask the same question in Luke's gospel. How did God introduce himself to the world? What were his priorities that we see in the coming of Jesus Christ? We, we're calling this uh, sermon series Refocus, and we want to look at the coming of Jesus. And what does it mean that he came into the world, and what impact does that have? Well, I think the question is fair to ask, what impression uh, did God want to make? Uh, and what application is there for us today? Because I believe that God was very, very intentional in his coming to earth. He didn't leave it to happenstance. There, there weren't any half measures, but rather God was very intentional in his purpose. From the very moment that the Savior is introduced on the pages of Scripture, God has a very specific plan in mind, and it has an application for you and for me today. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 uh, through 38. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of uh, the pregnancy of uh, Elizabeth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Before we study this passage, let's go to God in prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, turn to this uh, text that we so often do at Christmas time and consider your introduction of yourself to the world in physical form in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, as we look at this birth announcement, so to speak, we pray that you would uh, help us understand what you were trying to say about yourself then and what you are saying about yourself now, and the implications that that has on our lives. Father, we're here this morning for probably a variety of different reasons, but one of which is to worship you. It's to acknowledge that you are the Lord, that you are the King. And Father, for those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, it's an important morning for us. This morning, every week is an important morning for us because it's the opportunity to do that collectively uh, with friends and with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged from having been together this morning. But also, Father, for those who may be here seeking or wondering or questioning 
Uh, perhaps they have not had the opportunity to uh, understand. Maybe nobody's ever told them what it means uh, to be in a relationship with you. Father, I pray that, that each one of us, uh, whatever brought us here this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive my sin. I pray that you would uh, wash me with the blood of Jesus and that your spirit would uh, fill me and use me this morning uh, so that your word would be proclaimed because, Father, that's what we need to hear. We hear man's words all week long. This morning, we need to hear the word of God, and we pray that you would speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three observations about this particular text, about how God introduces himself to us and how that may apply to our lives this morning. Uh, The first observation I have is that God's uh, coming to earth is going to be a a humble and a gentle uh, introduction to himself, to mankind. Uh, Verses 26 through 30. Let me just go through those very briefly with you again. The angel Gabriel comes uh, to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Her name was Mary. Uh, And then the angel greets her, O favored one of the Lord, she's troubled. Uh, Not sure what this saying means. The angel says to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, just a couple of observations about this. First of all, Nazareth is not a bustling city. Uh, Nazareth is, is a small, obscure town, kind of in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. If you were going to uh, make a big introduction, if you were going to, to make a worldwide announcement, you know, you would probably go to, uh, to uh, in those days, you would go to Rome. Uh, you would go to the, to the seat of authority and power and influence over the whole uh, known world. And yet God chooses to go to a little small farming community, probably somewhere like Arnold, Missouri, not to pick on anybody from Arnold, but it's just, you know, kind of an out-of-the-way town. And he not only goes to an obscure out-of-the-way town instead of a a big city, but he comes to a mere peasant girl. Uh, She's not very old. She's still a virgin. And in her day and age, uh, young women were uh, married, probably somewhere between 16 and, and 19 years of age. And so Mary's probably very likely in that age range. She's engaged, or the word is betrothed, uh, to be married to Joseph, which is actually a stronger bond than the bond that we have today, which we call an engagement. Uh, It actually means uh, to be betrothed means that the legal aspect of them coming together is actually already taking place, and now the preparations are coming for the celebration. So in a sense, in in our sense today, in a legal sense, Mary and Joseph are are already married, but they're just at the very outset uh, of their relationship. So Mary's no one of any serious consequence. She doesn't hold any any authority or any power or any influence uh, in her community. She's simply a young woman. But the Gabriel says that uh, the angel says that uh, that this one who's coming is also going to belong to David's household. Now Mary is obviously also related uh, to David through uh, descent because it's clear that she and uh, Joseph are not going to have any relations until this child is born. And yet the the Davidic kingdom has long since disappeared from the pages of history. Over the centuries, the royal line has has simply melted into obscurity. The Jews have no autonomy. They're simply part of the Roman Empire. And so Joseph and Mary, although they are both uh, from the line of David, again, hold no really serious significance. All that to say, God is coming to very modest people. God is coming in a very humble way. He's not coming with, with bold trumpets sounding uh, to, the, to the seat of authority in the world. He's coming to a small, obscure town, which to me gives me great hope. 
Because God is willing, it seems to me, from this introduction of himself, one of the first things I learn about him is that he's willing to condescend to somebody like me. Folks that, that, that come in and out of my life on a daily basis tend to be, uh, you know, the more common folks in life. I don't run around in the circles of, of power and influence and authority. And here God is coming to a very simple woman who's betrothed to a very simple man who we later find out is a carpenter in a very small town of no real significance, which says to me that God wants to make himself accessible to everybody. That God is not here just for the powerful. He's not here just for the, for the intelligent. He's not here just for the, for the best and the brightest, but he's here and he desires to be in relationship with common people like you and me. I had the opportunity a, a few years ago, several years ago actually now, to, uh, to have um, an interaction with a guy who's a real hero of mine in the Christian community. It's a guy who is a, a speaker and an author and a lecturer. He's a, he's a seminary professor and he literally travels all over the world. Uh, and preaches and teaches, and, and he's, he's well-known. If I told you his name this morning, you would know him immediately. I had the opportunity to, uh, to have a conversation with him. He came to St. Louis and was speaking at a church where I had been serving. Uh, and that church had been going through some really difficult times, and uh, I was the guy assigned. I was assistant pastor at the time. I was assigned to go and pick him up at the airport and make sure he got to his hotel and then make sure he got to the, the speaking engagement on time. And I was thrilled to death. I mean, I would have carried him in my arms to the hotel if I needed to. I mean, I, I was just so looking forward to this. But I was also going into this relationship, you know, this, this, this new introduction with a lot of fear and trembling, you know. Well, you know, is the guy just going to kind of brush me off? I mean, I'm really a nobody. I haven't really accomplished anything yet. He has no reason to really, you know, engage with me at all. He'll probably be polite, but that'll be about the extent of it. Well, we get in the car at the airport, and he starts talking. And, and as he's talking, he's asking me questions. And as he's asking me questions, it's very clear to me that he's done his homework and that he knows about our congregation and he knows the things that we've been through. And in fact, he knows some things about me that he, because he took the time to call him ahead and find out and to do a little research. And after I dropped him off at the hotel, he said, listen, after I'm done speaking tonight, I want to go out with you and I want to sit down. There's a place we can go, you know, and have a coffee or have a beer or something to just sit down. And I want to talk to you because it seems like as a young guy, you're in a tough spot. And maybe there's some things I can do to share with you and encourage you and help you. And I was flabbergasted. Now, this is not, you know, somebody who the world sees as important, but in the Christian world, this is somebody who's extremely important. And he was taking time to hang out with me. He wanted to sit down with me and talk and hear about my heart and my concerns and my struggle as a young pastor trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing in a pretty tough situation. That always stuck with me. Here's a guy who's humble. Here's a guy who's, who's written, I don't know how many books and influenced, I don't know how many people and has, and has actually been in the presence of presidents and leaders of countries seeking his advice. And he's taken time to talk with me. And I think as we see God introducing himself in these pages, that's exactly what he's doing. He's not coming to the king. He's coming to Mary and to Joseph. He's coming to you and me in a very humble and a very gentle way. But secondly, I think this passage teaches us that God's coming is going to reintroduce his promise. Look at, skip down, look at verses 32 through 35. The angel is speaking and he says about about this son who's going to be born to Mary, excuse me, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I was a virgin? I love that question. He's just told her all this phenomenal stuff about 
about what's going to happen. And she goes, well, this is physically impossible. <laughs> you know, everything else is just kind of sailed right past her. But the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice the compassion of Gabriel reflecting the compassion of God in that statement. He doesn't go, Mary, don't worry about that. That's a silly question. Didn't you hear what I just said about how phenomenal this child's going to be? No. He takes the time to answer. He takes the time to answer her question. But then he goes on to remind her, this one's going to be holy. This one's going to be the son of God. God's promise is being reintroduced into history. The power of David's throne, which has long since vanished, is going to be reestablished. You know, God made a promise to David. God said to David, you know, over a thousand years before Jesus came, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne forever. There probably wasn't anybody walking around in those days that had great hope for that promise. The Romans had conquered the known world. Uh, They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And certainly the Davidic kingdom, having gone into obscurity, was nowhere near on the horizon of being reintroduced into history. And yet God was working his plan. The power of David's throne was going to be reestablished. But he's also called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. In other words, his influence and his authority was going to be as far-reaching as the universe. There would be no limit to the power that this one was going to bring into his kingship. And now we come back to the promise that God made to Abraham, that through one of your offspring, Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. And so God is reintroducing and remembering the promise that he made to Abraham, but also the promise he made to the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob will reign forever. This is not a temporary or an ill-conceived quick fix. This is a reign that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. God made promises going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all the way through the the Old Testament law and all the way through the Psalms and all the way through the Old Testament prophets. And now he is remembering his promises. And he's going to begin to bring them to fruition. And he's going to do that in the person of Jesus Christ through Mary, the simple woman. God hasn't forgotten his promise. And it is a far-reaching, it is eternal, it it is a universal promise. So whatever this son is going to do, Whatever attitude he's going to have towards man, it's going to be permanent. And it's going to be based on God's promises. And so we need to pay attention to this son that's coming. Because his attitude towards us is going to be of eternal weight. What Jesus thinks of you and me makes all the difference in the world. Which leads me to the third point of this passage. And it's simply this, that God's coming means our redemption. Look at verse 31 with me, if you would, for just a second. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You look at that and you go, well, what's what's the big deal? (laughs) Everybody knows that it's Jesus. Yes, but do you know what's behind that name? You know where that name comes from? In the Old Testament, that name in the Hebrew was Joshua. The name Joshua means this, the Lord is salvation. Not the Lord will bring salvation, not the Lord will provide salvation, not the Lord may be willing to save, but it's a statement, the Lord is salvation. So the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, I'm going to tell you the name of this child. The name of this child is the Lord is salvation. God's physical introduction into the world draws attention 
to our plight. Our plight is that we need a Savior. Our plight is that we're separated from God by our sin. Your plight this morning and my plight this morning is exactly the same. It's that I've offended a holy God, that I've done things that I never should have done from childhood on up. You know, the terrible twos were pretty terrible in my house. According to what my mom tells me, I was a good sinner at a very early age. Maybe some of you have children like that, or maybe you were a kid like that. There are also things that I should have done that I didn't do. I have a problem with sin in my life, friends. And it's not a little problem. Pastors don't have little problems with sin. Pastors have big problems with sin, just like you do. And I'm just as estranged from God as you are because of my thoughts and my words and my deeds. That's my plight as being born into a broken and sinful world. I look just like the world from which I have come. And so do you. But God's physical introduction not only draws attention to plight as being born, into a, being born into a broken and sinful world. I look just like the world from which I have come. And so do you. But God's physical introduction not only draws attention to our plight, but it also draws attention to his plan. The Lord is salvation. This one who's coming humbly so that we can get to know him, but also one who's coming with authority and power is coming to save. That's his agenda. You know, God could have introduced himself in a lot of different ways to Mary. He could have said, this one's going to be the Lord is judge or the Lord is awesome or the Lord is eternal. He could have chosen a lot of different names to give himself and and they would have been true, but he chose to focus his introduction on his mercy and his grace and his compassion. Remember our theme verse for this study, the son of man came to seek and to save. And so from the very outset of this introduction, we see God's compassion. And we see that God's coming can mean your redemption and my redemption. So you hear that this morning, you say, well, so what? (laughs) We get it. Probably the vast majority of you are here because you get it. You say, yeah, I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. I've confessed that I'm a sinner. I've put my faith in him. That's that's why I'm here today. I love Jesus. I understand grace. I get it. I'm, I'm doing the church thing. What's your point? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the point, quite frankly, this morning isn't whether or not you get it and I get it. If we're disciples of Jesus, I, I expect that you do if you belong to him. That's not the question. The question is, does the world get it? The question really is, friends, everything I've set up to this point basically has been window dressing to get to this. Do the people of our culture understand that the Lord is salvation? Is that their reaction when they think about God? What do they think when they think of God? Well, I did another survey this week. I not only asked people, okay, what do you want to be known for? You know, how do you want to introduce yourself? But I said, what are your friends? What are people that you, uh, you come into contact with? What do people say about God? You know, if you just wanted to fill in that blank, God is blank. How, how would people fill that in? And here are just a handful of the answers I got. I got dozens and dozens of answers. I'm just going to give you a few, but they all kind of are in the same, uh, in the same thought pattern. God is angry. God is distant. He's absent. God is meaningless. He's vengeful. He's impotent. He can't do anything. God is disinterested in me. God is the very last resort. God's optional. God's whoever I want him to be. God's okay for you, but not for me. God's asleep. 
He's powerless. He's intolerant. God is detached. Now, like I said, that's just a very small sampling uh, of the answers I got, but I think they're accurate as far as uh, how our culture looks in a, in a large segment of our culture looks at God. And I, and I have to ask this question. Well, if that's true, if the Lord is salvation and the culture's not getting it, I have to ask the question, why not? Where, where does the culture get this impression that God's angry or he's meaningless or he's vengeful or powerless or, or detached or whoever I want him to be? Well, there's a lot of different ways that people are influenced these days uh, by faith or about faith. Uh, if you turn on the TV, you know, there's a lot of debates uh, back and forth on TV between different theologians from time to time. Occasionally, you can find an atheist arguing with, you know, a pastor somewhere on, on uh, one of the news programs. And there's a lot of things that the media does uh, through print media, through TV, through movies, through music uh, that speak a lot about these attitudes towards God. So there, there's that. There's also our educational institutions. There are a lot of college professors out there that think that, that Christianity in particular is absurd. They make a mockery of it, and they encourage their students to reject it uh, without ever really studying it. So there's that influence. There's also people's circumstances. You know, somebody maybe who, who has never been introduced to God looks at their life, and maybe it's really good and going really well, and they go, well, God must be a nice guy. You know, he's that old, old buddy up in the sky who's looking out for me. Other people who have more difficult circumstances, uh, more challenging things in their lives, maybe look and say, you know, God doesn't really care. Some of these things about being distant or disinterested in me, perhaps from their circumstances. But I don't think we can let ourselves off the hook quite that easily. You see, friends, quite frankly, this morning, we bear some of this responsibility. Part of the reason the world thinks that way about God is because of what they see in my life and what they see in your life. Those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, let's not forget that Luke wrote another book. He wrote the book of Acts, and if you go to the first chapter of Acts, Luke records the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And the last thing Jesus said to his disciples was, you are my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness brings credibility to a case, right? So as a witness for Jesus, my life ought to bring credibility to the fact that the Lord is salvation, Well, now I have a problem because I'm going to have to look in the mirror. (laughs) Could it be that the world sees God as disinterested because of my lack of care for others? Perhaps the world thinks God's angry because of the way that I treated somebody this week. Might be that people see God as meaningless because they see no difference in my life as somebody who claims to be a disciple of Jesus and yet says that God can make all the difference in the world in their lives. Perhaps somebody this week figured out that God was intolerant because they saw that not only do I hate sin, but I hate sinners just as much. I was talking to a a new friend of mine this week. I haven't known this guy all that long, and he's just coming back to church, so to speak. Uh, He he left uh, Christianity for a while uh, and kind of wrestled with who he was and Uh, what was the meaning of life, and just in the last three or four years has been uh, what he would describe as coming back to faith. And I asked him uh, to describe a little bit of his struggle for me, and without going into a lot of detail, one of the things he said was, you know, I I just couldn't stand being around people who call themselves Christians. And he said, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they were bad and I was good, because I wasn't. He said the difference was I admitted I was bad, and most of the Christians I saw were always trying to be something they weren't. 
They were trying to pretend like they were really good and had no need for Jesus and their goodness was coming out of themselves. But I knew how they lived the rest of the week. I lived around the Christian community and my parents were in the Christian community and I watched how these people interacted with each other. So I'm in business. I watched how they did their business dealing. I watched how they raised their kids and I knew what was really going on in their lives. And yet every Sunday in and Sunday out, they would come and pretend like they had no problems and it absolutely drove me away from the faith. Friends, God has introduced himself to us as the Lord is salvation. And I believe as a witness to Jesus Christ, when people interact with me, they need to see that in my life. I might be the only Bible somebody reads this week. My life might be the only opportunity somebody has to reflect on the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. Most seekers these days aren't necessarily going to pick up a Bible and sit down and begin to read it, but rather they're going to watch those who claim a certain type of lifestyle, a certain type of conviction, a certain type of belief. In our case, it's the Christian faith. And they're going to say, how does that person's life match up with what they claim to believe? You say, well, that's a pretty significant responsibility. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to take that responsibility on. Well, as a disciple of Jesus, that's not your option. It's not my option. Jesus said, you're my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. So we, we can't plead ignorance. We can't say it's the other guy's fault, or as Stanislaw Lee says, each snowflake in the avalanche uh, pleads innocent. <laughs> when you put it all together, it's an unmitigated disaster. But everybody wants to say, wait a minute, it's not my fault. Friends, quite frankly, I'm tired of saying it's not my fault. It is. There are people that I interact with that would no more see Jesus in me than they'd see a man in the moon. And I believe that's true, not only in my life, but I believe it's true across the board in the Christian community today. And I'm not here to point fingers at anybody. I'm simply here to raise the question because I believe that God has introduced himself to us. I believe this passage in one simple sentence, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because the Lord is salvation. If that's true, and the glory of the gospel is true, and the weight and the power of that statement is true, then it ought to make a difference in my life. It ought to cause me to live with joy, with thankfulness, with compassion and with grace and with mercy. Quite simply, it should cause me to reflect the character of my Savior. It's on me, not on anybody else. I have to look in the mirror. The gospel is glorious. I need to bask in it. I need to live in it. I need to breathe it in. 